you for joining us in this episode of the Economic Development Radio produced by Roadmap Infonomics. My name is Toguzani Twala. I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, someone that I've known, Mr. Saki Zanukwaga, who is the CEO of the Houting Enterprise Propeller, otherwise known as GEP. Uh, someone that I've known for a couple of years, someone who's very experienced in doing economic development work and supporting businesses in different roles as well. Welcome, Saki, to our show. Thank you, Togozani. It's great to see you again and always looking good, you yeah, know. Thank you. <laughs> so I really look forward to this particular interview and, and I'm hoping that our listeners will be able to take, you know, some few key information that they can use uh, in terms of supporting their businesses and in engaging with the Houting Enterprise Propeller going forward. But before we sort of like start with the actual conversation, can I just ask you to introduce yourself, tell us who you are, and maybe highlight some of the key achievements in terms of your career, because I know you've been in a couple of organizations as well. But yeah, let's just know you uh, as a person first before we'll discuss, you know, the serious business around the Houting Enterpropeller uh, work. Thank you, Togozani. I guess maybe on the personal side first before I get to to the career highlights and everything else. I grew up in the Eastern Cape. I moved uh, to the Western Cape. I studied at the University of the Western Cape. Um, I went to New York, 98, 99 at Bard College on a scholarship. I love the arts. Uh, I photograph when I have time, mostly social yes. documentary. <laughs> I, um, I collect art and I collect wine. So those are things I do outside of work. But I've been fortunate to have been in senior roles in government for a while. I mean, my first um, acting CEO role was when I was at the Land Bank as head of investments, 2007. I started acting CEO 2008. So I've practically from then been in CEO roles, which is now more than 15 years. Um, it was the Land Bank. I went to Prasa. Uh, I headed Autopex and Prasa Technical. Um, I was at GGDA, as you know, um, as former colleagues. I was CEO there for two years. Then I was on my own, which I think was important for me on the journey with uh, Houting Enterprise Propeller um, of being an entrepreneur. I generally have been doing investments over time. So I invested in a stock exchange um, and became full-time in it with uh, other partners. And I joined GEP about two years ago. Um, and and I think for me, the fulfilling thing has been seeing, you know, the transactions I start to conclusion or in the case of Autopex, it was a business with less than 200 buses and we had to run passes for the World Cup and we were part of a procurement process to get 570 passes. So the business more than doubled. Prasa Technical, which I was part of, was a business which um, was new at Prasa as a project management business. We started it from scratch and it implemented multi-billion rands worth of projects, which were some of the most significant at Prasa at the time. Um, the stock exchange was a new project with, you know, getting into uncharted ground. Um, as entrepreneurs, and now I'm at GEP, working with entrepreneurs on the other side where I make investment decisions. So so it's been a very fulfilling and interesting time for me in the past, you know, 15, 20 years. 
Indeed, you know, a very, you know, fulfilling uh, journey that you have had, Saki. And I think what is also good is that at some point you are an entrepreneur yourself. You know? So you know some of the challenges yeah. that are faced uh, by entrepreneurs and people are running small businesses, you know, startups as well. So I'm sure that when you engage with entrepreneurs, you know, we engage, you know, from an informed point of view. But you've also just shared with us, you know, some of the key highlights um, in terms of, you know, you becoming a CEO very early in your career. So what do you attribute your success as a CEO? And for you, what are the key, you know, traits for an effective leader? So for me, I think to be effective as a leader, you got to inspire people to deliver. Because however smart you are, and I think there's enough literature written on this, um, you can't do everything on your own. You have 24 hours in a day. You can't be everywhere. Um, you you need your executives, um, managers, um, and those who report to these managers to do what they need to do on a daily basis. So part of it, people have got to be clear about what they must deliver. Because um, I think with government, particularly, there's always a temptation to make the 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 objectives more grand than they should be. So people put hope in a strategy either than being, this is what I must deliver and this is what I have resources to deliver on because then you can't hold people accountable. So I think the clearer uh, the goals are, the better. And then the, the next thing is how you monitor the implementation. Um, you got to hold people accountable on their deliveries, um, deliverables rather on, a weekly basis, monthly basis. I mean, in businesses that I'm in, I will have X calls either every week or as a minimum twice a month. And that's because when you get people regularly reporting on what they are doing and what they're supposed to do, they prepare. They prepare for the meetings and you get. So those are little steps at times that you do. But it's also important that you affirm in what you do. So when people have not delivered, you must hold them to account, take the necessary action, either corrective steps or discipline them. But it's also important to reward performance. And I think that's what government doesn't also do very well. Um, some of the things, for example, we've done is to even structure annual increases as bonuses as a way to try and, okay, this is what is you know available within the budgets because we're in a constrained economic environment. But you do need to to incentivize those that are performing because you know a bonus is not automatic; it's based on on your performance. So I think, for me, in short, if you you know wanna be effective, you gotta find a way to inspire people um, to deliver on something, and that something must be clear, and they must then know that you are fair in how you're going to judge them. And that, you know, those who don't perform, there will be consequences. But for those who perform, there's also rewards. Thank you so much, Sak. I really like that. And you've touched on one of the key issues at leadership level, you know, the issue of accountability. But I also like, you know, that point in terms of saying, you know, you do want to reward high performers, but you also want to deal with people who are underperforming because this is a public institution. So it's very important, you know, in terms of colleagues that you are working with, uh, to also, you know, fulfill their roles in a more effective uh, manner as well. Now, let's come to the core business of the Houting Enterprise Propeller, otherwise known as GEP. Uh, for some of our listeners who might not be aware of who GEP is, how do you normally sort of like describe, you know, the core mandate 
uh, of GEP, mainly to potential clients uh, who might want to engage with the agency at some point? Um, so, Togazani, I've, I've generally answered this question in two ways. Part of it is just brand association. There's another state-owned company most people know, which is the ITC. I often say we're the ITC for Gauteng. So that's a, a reference point. We finance small businesses. We're owned by the Gauteng government um, to basically provide support to small businesses, all forms of support. And we must then decide within available budget and means what that support looks like. In most occasions, it's loans. There are some small grants which we do provide, and those grants may go to purchasing equipment for very small businesses, or it may go to paying for training um, or any other of the requirements that are needed. But that's generally the the forms of support. We call the other one business development support, and we call the other one financial support. But it's either a loan, simple loan structure, with interest rate that typically doesn't go beyond prime. Um, and then we structure the term of the loan depending on the affordability of the business. And we do then get to have special programs where we have grants. Most of the grants don't go beyond 50,000, but we have a youth program, which is up to a million and 50% of it can be a grant. So if you're applying on that youth program for 100,000, 50,000 will be a loan, 50,000 a grant. If you're applying for a million, 500,000 is a loan, 500,000 is a grant. That that's quite interesting, you know, and 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 I like you know that combination um, in terms of where you are also able to offer grants as well, as much as you you do offer loans. Maybe just Saki, um, given you know the post COVID nineteen situation, how has the funding environment changed for you as GEP, mainly for 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 small businesses because most businesses were affected severely, you know, by by that particular um, pandemic. Uh, so how has the environment changed for you as a DFI that is owned by the Gauteng Provincial Government? Okay, let me start with the good. <clears throat> um, the good is that the province put um, $250 million, um to support small businesses um, post-COVID. We then did two things with it. The first one was you had COVID and then the unfortunate situation of the looting uh, July, was it 2021? Yes. Um, we then put a $100 million rents fund with the ITC for those businesses who were affected. And there, again, half of it was a loan, half of it was a grant. And why a grant component? Because, you know, if you were looted and you didn't have insurance, when you put in money into the business, it's not necessarily that it's going to help you have more revenue. It's trying to put you back in the same position you were in. Yeah. So we tried to cushion them a little bit with that. And then we set up another 400 million rands partnership with the ITC, and we called it uh, the Township Economy Partnership Fund. Again, 50% um, ITC money, 50% Gauteng province money on the 400, so 200, 200. But all of it alone. Um, but what then we did from a provincial perspective, we decided we'll take more risk than the ITC. We'll take the 20% first loss because we wanted the funding to be cheaper to the entrepreneurs and also go into sectors which were traditionally not funded by big institutions, including the ITC. I mean, typically the ITC would historically not go below 250000 
So we then, through that joint partnership, funded um, the taxi industry. We funded Bridge Taxi Finance. We funded uh, Purchase Order Finance as multiple entities that we did. And again, why Purchase Order or Invoice Discounting is important is that a lot of entrepreneurs have cash flow issues. So yep. you get a 60 million rands contract and maybe you need 5 million to start immediately or 10 million to start immediately. Where do you go? Uh, most financial institutions, if you're not banking with them, with a credit record they are comfortable with and that's not just your credit score it's about cash flows that have been coming in they're like well we see the contract into the future but historically you've not had these kinds of numbers we are not sure yes. so so we we decided that that's an important market and then rentals and townships again very interesting because you typically have title deed issues um in the in the townships or you have zoning issues yeah. or you have infrastructure availability and 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 so it's needed people who have creative solutions uh, on how to deal with those problems so typically these are not funded as loans as uh, home loans they are funded like a typical property business. loan they're funded as a business okay so you look at the projected cash flows and and because it's a thriving market you have people who've understood and one of those entities is inlu they've largely been in galfontaine and they've extended elsewhere so we funded them as well and then with SASME that came on board, they put an additional 100 million. So what started as 400 million became 500 million. And some of these partners also brought their own money um, where we were almost matching them rent for a rent on what they were doing. So it's probably one of the most successful schemes uh, the GP has done uh, at that scale uh, over years. And we're not seeing a lot of losses there. The money is practically deployed uh, to entrepreneurs who are mainly in townships. So that, that's been probably one of the most successful schemes post-COVID by the province. And we're looking at bringing that, uh, at bringing that up. Because for us, it's been, you know, COVID rejigged the whole economy. Some businesses were severely under strain. And then there are some areas that have grown. Um, there was a launch now by economic development of a partnership with Uber uh, where there's, you know, last mile delivery. Um, you know, it's a project which trains people to ride mo motorcycles, but they get then plugged in on actual deliveries. So, you know, e-commerce has grown and it needs logistics to support it. So there are those new now offshoots. Um, I mean, you're doing a podcast. It's now become you know, a new way of reaching out to people. Yes. So we support really innovative entrepreneurs and it's been very encouraging, not only to see the money, but to see, you know, the new things that people are doing. Thank you so much, Saki, for sharing that particular, you know, example in terms of this innovative partnership with the IDC. And, and really, I always say economic development and small business development, it's all about collaboration. And here we are seeing a very good example of a provincial DFI, you know, collaborating with the national DFI in the form of the IDC. Um, are you hoping to replicate, you know, some of, you know, these kind of partnerships because it allows you to leverage, you know, uh, other existing funding out there and bring other partners? And I'm also getting a sense in terms of, you know, the economies of scale, you were able to impact, you know, a number of beneficiaries, uh, SGEP, uh, are you looking at, you know, those kind of partnership going forward? 
Um, are you also looking maybe at partnering with commercial banks? I don't know whether there is already something that you are doing with commercial banks or you're playing, you know, uh, in the space of partnering with other DFIs. Um, Togozani, I mean, we're doing now a lot of partnerships. We've learned a lot on on what we've, we did, but more than learning a lot, we now can show track record uh, to everyone and say it's no longer just a concept. Yeah. We've done it. Uh, this is how we've done it. These are the results. Um, there's there's many there's many partnerships. Some are in the pipeline. I won't mention it, but one we've just uh, concluded. About a week ago is with the NYDA. So on the youth fund, we I mentioned um, we've been putting ten million a year on it. Uh, NYDA has come; they've put in ten million on top of it. So we've doubled what is going into youth. Um, you know, within again the available budgets. Um, there's one on cooperatives within social development. Social development. Um, well, as the word suggests, I mean, we tend to think about it in terms of grants, yeah. but part of the mandate is to make sure that people are not dependent on grants. They can develop themselves out of poverty yes. and do certain things. So they they procure a lot of services and in their procurement, they're trying to make sure that people who come from those communities have opportunity to supply the very same goods and services that they procure and one of their strategies is cooperative. So we've been working with them on that. <clears throat> There's a partnership we've done. So we have a, a pipeline of various partnerships that we're doing and we announce them as we as we go along. There are uh, private institutions that we've partnered with. Others have been doing tra training. There's one called Africa Tukin. Uh, we've partnered with them on, on that training. And there are some banks we are now talking to to look at the enterprise development programs or enterprise supply development programs, how we either plug in the the cash flow funding element uh, onto them because you know some of the institutions give contracts and they need someone to to bridge the gap. So bridging finance is is what we're looking at, but at times on how we can then get those um, those funds dedicated to, to, to this used a lot more productively. Because some of them, you know, they get used on training and others. Some training is effective. Some of it is not, not effective. Yeah. Uh, so you see money spent, but the results are not there. Yeah. And we then providing a platform where we're saying, these are the things that we're doing. You know, you good corporate citizens, you are committing your, your monies on enterprise development. Can we give you a platform where you can put money into things that will deliver results? Okay, interesting. So maybe if we stay with, especially, you know, the partnership with the IDC, um, you have clearly indicated that, you know, GEP is a DFI. There's a bit of criticism sometimes that comes from small business owners and, and entrepreneurs who are saying that development finance institutions tend sometimes to behave like commercial banks, you know. What has been your experience and how are you dealing with that uh, SGEP because you also want to fund sustainable, you know, projects, I'll assume, um, but you also want to be developmental, you know, because you are trying to plug in that particular market gap that exists where funders, you know, that are more commercially driven um, and not, you know, looking at some of these SMMEs. So as the CEO of GEP, how do you make it a point that you navigate that kind of a situation that can be very challenging? 
so that you don't find a situation where people are also saying or entrepreneurs are saying GEP is not developmental, you know, it's starting to behave like, you know, commercial banks. So as a general question, Togozani, it is a difficult one and I'll answer the different layers of it. So the first yeah. one in general, when people talk about DFIs in general, there's often an assumption that they're all the same and they operate the same. So there's one particular DFI which um, is in agriculture. Typically over many years, I mean, I don't recall over the past 15 years, them having more than 10% capital adequacy, okay. meaning your own capital versus what you borrow in the market. Yes. Now, why that is relevant is that, let's say even if it was 20%, when you have your own capital, which is 20%, and the rest you borrow from investors at 80%, at any given point, the investors want to make sure that your losses are not more than the 20% of your own capital. Yeah. But again, it's not about you know just protecting their own. If they can see that you keep eroding your capital, your cost of funding goes up and then they're like, well, eventually you're going to be insolvent. So you have what on paper is a development finance institution, but in reality can be developmental because this is not government money. Um, it is it, it it is borrowed from investors yes. and, and they want to protect. And that capital may be pensioners' money, it may be, so it comes with certain strings. Yeah. So you can't blame management in those institutions for doing what they are supposed to do because they're operating within constraints. Yeah. Then you have development finance institutions like GEP, which are fully funded um, uh, by the province, well, except the partnerships we have, which we've generally done off balance sheet. So we don't really take the money as an investment or as a loan. We practically co-fund, um, you know, or almost co-invest um, in, in these partnerships. Um, but for that reason, we are then able to not overprice the loans. Um, and two, we are able to take certain risks because for us, the return is the development dividend. It's not a financial return. Yes. <clears throat> so we use Prime as reference because it's it's an objective instrument. We could, we could use CPI, we could use JIPA or yeah. Just an understood and objective instrument, but we don't really do risk pricing because for us, we want the entrepreneurs to be sustainable that they don't have to come back for funding. So what we've done, because even in the partnerships, we made sure, well, we take 20% first loss, but we kept the interest rate that um, these institutions can charge. Um because the benefit must be to the entrepreneur. So that's what we've done. Um but our scale is a little bit small because the budgets have not been big. Yes. Um, so for me, in short, I think the entrepreneurs generally have to try and find which of the DFIs suit their needs. Because while the GEP may be ideal in terms of cost of funding and the risk appetite on projects which are commercially viable, um, we have a cap on what we can do. Typically, the transactions are between 5 and 10 million, the most we can do. And then the bigger DFIs can sign billions of checks. Now, the higher you go there, then the cost of funding and the risk appetite may be a little bit different. But from a GEP point of view, we actually have funded a lot of entrepreneurs who 
otherwise would not be funded by commercial banks because they have a different risk appetite. Yeah. But even with us, because this is pensioner, well, not because this is taxpayers' money, we also have to demonstrate that we are responsible and not reckless in how we're lending. Um, the projects have to demonstrate commercial viability Ability. at some point. Um, and and that's and that's really what we do. I mean, we get on average about 500 applications a month. Um, and the reality is that even if we wanted to, with limited resources, we may not be able to fund all of them. So in what we we fund, we would rather you know fund the ones with a better chance of success and the ones with a better chance of employing more people, paying more taxes, contributing to the economy, mm-hmm. and 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 so so those are the choices we have to make because the resources are limited. Yeah, which which takes me to my next question. So, what do you look for um, when an entrepreneur approaches GEP? What do you look for in terms of a fundable project? You know, um, what are some of those key um, considerations that you look for? I think you've given us a sense, especially in terms of you know how much you normally fund. You know, you indicated between five to ten million per project. But what do you look for? And maybe you can also just give us a sense in terms of what you normally not fund uh, from a sector's point of view. So let's say if I'm doing something that is um, in the liquor industry, uh, no other DFIs won't touch that, you know, or explosives. So maybe can you just give us a sense in terms of what you're looking for um, in terms of a fundable project and, and what is it that you normally wouldn't just fund as GEP? We're lucky as GEP that we don't have exclusions um on sectors um i mean i've never understood uh, the sense behind the exclusion of some of these sectors i mean i always use a very practical example you have the big retailers with liquor stores in them yes you know so you find retail but you can't find alcohol you know yeah um and we look at alcohol outlets as the so-called scene industries but you know parents go with their kids to woolies pick and pay checkers and you know pick a bottle of wine put it in the same basket but it's still a problem when it's in a bottle store so there are just certain things where i think people are bringing their own personal principles into 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 certain areas of funding which i don't think makes sense but that's a story for another day but Based on your question, no, we don't have exclusions. We, we fund pretty much any business that is viable. What do we look at? So two things, the basic, basic thing you got to have is a business plan. Um, then the other documents are mostly, um, you know, compliance, supplementary, but you need a business plan and there okay. are templates for business plans. And why do we need this? It's not so much for complying with our requirement. Is that you got to show us that your business makes sense? Yeah. Um, and when people ask me what do we find, we find what makes sense. And because I mean, investment decisions, there's financial ratios, there's norms, but there's judgment. So if you come and say, I need a million rands, I'm gonna do this business and my revenue is going to come from here, demonstrate that you have a reasonable basis to assume where that revenue is going to come from. And those reasonable bases are always different. 
it may be that you have a contract. Say, here's a contract uh, that I've been given. This is where the revenue is going to come from. I have competent people who can deliver. I've mitigated these risks <clears throat> in this way and that way. I've been doing this, um, you know, employed for 15 years. I have the skill, I have the experience. Now I got this contract. I'm an entrepreneur. Or I've been running my business for 15 years. I'm now growing. Um, if, you know, it's not contract-based, it's based on an area of growth, um, show us how you arrived at the assumptions. You're saying, okay, the township market is growing on rentals. At least have some feasibility you've done. Yes. Um, doesn't have to be that you've paid a big law firm, uh, well, audit firm to do it. Business plan. Yeah. It could well be that you've gone to the township, you've spoken to people, um, you've gone to the municipality, you know how many houses are in the area, maybe you have 10 entrepreneurs who've told you we want to rent out yes. and they already have tenants. Just show something. So that's, that's it, it's got to be, it's not you convincing the funder. The funder must believe you when you um, sell your story that you it's well-researched, it's well-thought-through, because ultimately it's a lose-lose. Yes. If you make assumptions that are incorrect, you are going to end up in debt, um, you know, from financiers, and the financiers are going to lose money. So it's counterintuitive to believe that financiers don't want to give money, especially those that are DFIs. Yes, in some instances, the risk appetite is a little bit high, but that's also because now, us as South Africans, I think we often forget, you know, when we sit in dinner tables, we complain, you know, when there's a big loan and there's a write-off or there are losses. Ah, government, you know, uh, gives money to celebrities and influencers. You see now, this is what has happened. I tweeted about this NYTA fund we just concluded, and someone says, no, but... Uh, government entities only fund influencers. I'm like, okay, I mean, I, I, I'm in an entity where we fund and I don't know if we funded any influencers. Yeah. And if we did, it was not because they're influencers. I mean, there's hundreds of people who fund it. They apply and they get the money. Yeah. But we put these barriers and assumptions in our own heads. And what they then do is that you then get to have audits done. I mean, one of the biggest pension funds had a big audit because of certain transactions that went wrong. But if you look at their overall portfolio, was it worth it? I'm not sure. Yes, I think there is a um, focus that must be put on taxpayers' money or pensioners' money and what happens. But you don't want a system now that is risk-averse because people don't want to make mistakes. Because if they make mistakes, they are going to be punished. punished yes. As long as the mistakes are rational, you can demonstrate that I applied myself and these were the facts at the time. Them going wrong after that, no one knows the future. If we did, I mean, life would be a lot more simpler. Yeah, definitely. And and, and just once um, an SMME qualifies for funding, do you offer any post-investment support so that you know these businesses can be sustainable and then they'll be able to repay you know, the loans? Um, what kind of post-investment support do you offer SGEP? At this stage, not much. Um, our so-called business development uh, budget is very small. Um, just to give context, I mean, it's been on average below 30 million a year uh, for a province this big. Yeah. Uh, so your ability to pay 
coaches, mentors, lawyers, accountants, marketers, blah, 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 and all the other things that are acquired is limited. Yeah. So we do get to have people who come to us and say, I have this program, I want to support and we do it. But what we do do is to monitor performance. Um, so we have our own staff that will visit these businesses, look at how they're performing, and um, um, and hopefully we can intervene before problems start. Okay. No, that's, that's quite interesting because at least you are able to support them. Now, looking at your current loan book and, and profile of your clients, which economic sectors will you say most of your clients operate in? And on average, you know, how many people do they employ? Uh, because we also hear quite a lot that SMMEs are very critical in terms of job creation as well. Um, you know, big companies don't always create, you know, new jobs. Um, so, and you did indicate that, you know, that's one of your developmental goals to say you want to assist these entrepreneurs so that they can sustain their businesses and in the process, you know, create job opportunities. So which which key sectors are you seeing in terms of, you know, the clients that you, you, you're assisting and, and then, you know, job creation uh, impact? For now, I mean, a lot of our... Majority of our book has been in contract purchase order financing. And we've allowed ourselves to be mainly demand driven. <clears throat> so we don't we don't channel the market into saying these are the things you must apply for. So we let individual um, entrepreneurs apply. Um, and we've seen by default this is the major thing which we had anticipated that as more and more opportunities come for majority black owned uh, entities the major constraint is then working capital to fulfill them while yes you know startups may need term loans and there's many others but as the economy is transforming opportunities for contracts are coming up even with government because government is one of the big procurers that one of the main reasons for lack of delivery is because the entrepreneurs just don't have the working capital. So that's been that, and it's been across the board. So whether it's construction or people who are delivering a service or somebody's doing an event, so it's just been across all the sectors. Um, and we're happy with that because it then means we are responding to what is required. We've also then had you know, either companies which were small and they're trying to expand coming to us for term loans of between a year to five years and we've funded those. So so the over-concentration has largely been on contract and purchase order finance at this stage. And the sectors have been varied um, uh, on what on what we finance. Okay. No, thank you so much, Saki. And then, you know, lately there are some sentiments that are becoming, you know, a reality for entrepreneurs. And some of the entrepreneurs are now saying it's very difficult to do business in South Africa, you know, with the stagnant economic growth, high interest rates, you know, energy security issues. Um, do you agree in terms of some of these particular sen sentiments? And if yes, what advice can you share with small business owners and entrepreneurs listening to this particular interview? There's a saying I like that fortune favors the bold. Whatever situation there is, um, there's always somebody making money. So you have a choice to be the one making money or the one complaining. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, in this economy, there are people who are doing great things. There are businesses that are thriving. 
Um, if you look at, I mean, some of these retailers, the ones who are first in on on the on the last mile delivery, they're really doing well. well. Um, they are everywhere, and it's impacted on their profits. Um, what I mentioned about you know rentals and townships, even you know as before the economy was performing at the level we are, malls and townships were doing a little bit better than some of the bigger regional malls. Um, and that's it. You know, generally the entrepreneurs who've, who've taken the first step have generally been rewarded. Yes, there are some who may have banned and and may not have, um, you know, gotten the returns that they wanted. But I think the, the economy is always going to grow um, based on those who have confidence about the future. Even, let's say, with um, the energy issues, this is where we're now seeing a lot of innovation. There's now a lot of off-grid solutions that are coming and they are getting cheaper and cheaper and they are getting more and more practical. Not only are they good business opportunities for those who are there, but they're also actually making people a lot more independent of the grid um, because, I mean, this affects our own uh, levels of consumption. And a lot of the problems we have in South Africa also, I mean, of economic growth, fairly similar. Uh, I quoted uh, you know, the World Economic Forum report, uh, their global risk rating report, and they said for the next couple of years, risk number one in the whole world is rising cost of living. So it's a it's recognized as a global risk yes. by by global leaders, and 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 a lot of us when we then face our own problems, we think we are the only ones facing them and the rest of the world isn't. But I think the difference with South Africa is that at times we're not even realizing what is our own potential and our own growth capability. Let's take one sector. I mean, the tourism sector is a sector that can grow. Um, one of the things I believe is constraining it are airlines. The prices are too expensive. But South Africa, I mean, was voted recently as one of the best destinations in the world. Best destinations in the world. Cape Town is one of the best cities in the world. The world yes. So we, we have a, a cost advantage because for those who you know spend in dollar, euro, we're cheaper with the weakening rent, but there are then certain constraints. When they get here, the airlines are too expensive or there are certain things we are not managing, perceptions on crime. Um, because, I mean, who wants to go to a country where they believe they are not safe? Yes. Um, and there may be realities of it. And if there are, what are we doing? You know, are we putting in the resources into that sector where we know that this is a cash earner for us? So I think there are certain things we are not doing. Um, and everyone wants to say, this one is at fault, that one is at fault. And my question always is, what are you doing? All of us have a responsibility, whether a private citizen or public I mean, if you are in a private sector, do your job. Do what you're supposed to do. Pay the, the services to government so that government can deliver what they need to deliver. When you are in government, do what you need to do. do you can't have people all the time not sure, asking questions, and, and they get paid every day, and they have money, and they are not using it. Deliver, sort out the potholes, employ the police if you need to, get their cars working so that they can patrol, you know, Pro, courts must process cases efficiently so that people have confidence in the system. So there's many things we can do. But for me, as I'm saying, these are really opportunities to make money. Um, and, and as we all make money, then the economy is going to grow.
Definitely. And, and it leads me to my next question, Saki, as we move towards closure. Um, what is your outlook of the South African economy? This is a, a broader, you know, a question because I know you also have training in economics and, and I know you are involved in some of the upcoming BRICS event. You know, what is the outlook for you? Um, and, and maybe even a tip for SMMEs, you know, who really want to expand their businesses? One part is to look at, you know, the forecasts uh, that have been made, whether States SA, Reserve Bank, um, some of these international, you know, monetary institutions, blah, blah, blah. And they've given what their predictions are about. And there's one bank that's even done scenario planning on economic growth in the world until 2075. So you can look at those and say, well, we think South Africa is going to be here. But me as a person, I'm, I still have confidence uh, about the future of this economy. I think it can grow um, at rates of 5% plus every year. But I think one of the big things that's going to make it grow is when the leaders or maybe not the leaders, actually. <clears throat> when us as private citizens, we stop placing a lot of premium on leaders doing the right thing. Yes, it is important and it is needed. Um, and when I say leaders, I don't mean just government and the private sector. I mean, you have entities that have been sitting on significant amounts of money that they're not investing in the economy. And some of them have seen their competitors grow very fast, who were able to take a risk and get into new sectors. So people sitting on cash is not only just a problem of the rest of the economy, it's also a problem of shareholders of those companies who are not holding managers to account and say, you have leaders here who are not making the right decisions because we're not sure what's going to happen with elections. We're not sure about this. We're not sure about that. Yes, those risks are real, but, I mean, go to most developing nations um, and tell me how many of them are perceived to be stable with this rising cost of living that are bringing a challenge across the world. So really, you know, you find someone, oh, no, I'm not sure about South Africa, but they're willing to go to another country a lot more riskier than South Africa. Africa. Like, make it make sense. So I think until we we have leaders who are willing to take the risks, or if they are not, those who are not in leadership and are willing to do the right thing must stand up and be, well, we think you guys are tired or you've run out of ideas. Let's put people in who can do something. You know, Maybe now your time as a CEO has run out get somebody else to be a CEO who's willing to grow. I mean, in, in your podcast environment, there are people who've grown. Yes. I mean, there was somebody celebrating a million subscribers. Hey, you know, they didn't wait and say, ah, we're not sure, politics, elections, and, and they have a thriving business. Definitely. No, thank you so much. And, and, and I guess maybe even the initiative that we've seen recently that is led by Business Unity South Africa, you know, the pledge of the CEOs of, I think it's about 115 big companies, you know, where they've pledged to work with government to deal with issues that, you know, some of them have raised, you know, issues around crime, issues around the energy, you know, and, and issues really around, you know, growing the economy as well. So, Saki, as we move towards closure, you know, how do SMMEs, you know, reach out to GEP? 
can you just provide us, you know, with a sense, you know, what is the best way um, of those that are interested in approaching GEP, whether for funding or non-financial support services that you offer? No, thank you, Tobazan. So applications are online. Um, you go to the website, gep.co.za. Um, you do the applications and then you follow up either through the call center. We also have branches across the province. Um, you go to the website, you can also get where they are. If you don't have access online, um, you can visit them um, um, to be able to get support. Um, they will allow you to apply online in those in those regions but most uh, of the dfis um you know have online applications so even if you want to apply outside of the gp just go online thank you so much saki we've come to an end of this particular interview i really want to appreciate your time and the insights that you have shared with us and i'm sure our listeners who are entrepreneurs and small business owners would be able you know, to take some of this particular information and use it uh, in terms of growing their businesses, either approaching GEP if they haven't approached GEP before. But I think you've also shared quite a lot of knowledge, you know, generally around, you know, business issues and how DFIs operate. So I'm hoping that, you know, our listeners will find this particular interview very informative and empowering. But most importantly, thank you so much for what you do for our province, the province of Houting and our country, because I know that you are involved in other initiatives that really contribute you know, to the national economy. We really wish you all the best uh, in terms of what you do. To our listeners, until our next episode, keep well. Thank you, Tawazan. Thank you so much, Saki. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Economic Development Radio. For more information or if you want to subscribe so that you can receive all the episodes that we are recording, please visit www.economicdevelopmentradio.org so that you can subscribe. This is your host, Togozane Twala. Until our next episode, thank you. Thank you.